who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everybody to IGN Unfiltered. As you can see, we've taken the show on the road for the first time. We are in Seattle, Washington at Highwire Games where the new PlayStation VR title, Golem, is being developed. We've been covering Golem all month long. And I'm sitting here with a gentleman that you, if you don't know his name, well, you're about to, but you also know his work. Marty O'Donnell, the longtime composer, sound designer at Bungie on all the Halo games, Destiny, and now here we are with your new game, Marty. It's great to see you. It's great to see you. Thanks for coming out to Seattle. It's great. Happy to be here. So yeah. I want to start, we're going to go all way back in time, because you've had a couple of careers. Video games are your second career. It's my second career, yes. Let's start, I want to go all the way back. And okay. Just, and just, well, it's, and ask you, first of all, is there, because you're just responsible for some of the most uh, brilliant <laughs> musical compositions in, that video games have ever seen. Thank you. Is there a melody in your head all the time? <laughs> I, I'm serious, I want to know how... How that works? Uh, you know, I don't think so. I think what happens is once you study art or a composition or anything that's creative, um, the, apparently the two sides of your brain sort of like cross over. So there's, I have enough logical approach to music that the sort of natural, oh, I'm just being inspired and I just have melodies sort of floating in and out of my brain. That stuff just doesn't happen anymore. I actually <laughs> work at it and. Yeah and force it to come. Clearly, effectively, <laughs> I might add. Uh, what was the first piece of music that you made? Do you remember? Uh, um, well, yes. When I was probably four years old, I made the classic rainstorm, thunder, lightning piece on the piano. And I, 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 it was very original. But of course, I found out later on that just about every four-year-old who has a piano <laughs> makes that piece up. Well, it starts with a slightly tinkling rain, and then it gets bigger and bigger, and then the thunder starts, and then it goes back to tinkling rain. What's the earliest recorded? Do you have, a, <laughs> do you have any recordings of any like really early stuff uh, from your childhood boy. days? Or? Um, yeah, I had a little teeny uh, recorder. I don't have any of that, though, no. Mm. 
But I do have a band I was in, in uh, when I was in seventh grade. We had a little band and we covered the Tijuana Brass. So I played piano for the Tijuana Brass in my junior high. You're the and only, I have a recording of that. Yeah, I think you're the only person I know that ever had to take piano lessons that it actually like became a, a big part of their life. Uh, when did you first fall in love with music and want to do it as a career? Oh, probably at the earliest age I can remember. My mother was a piano teacher and we always had a piano in the house. Mm -hmm. So um, I, you know, I couldn't walk through the room without reaching up and hitting the piano and just hearing what that sounded like. So, um, and then my father, who's a film director, I remember he brought home uh, an album from a movie that was just come out, and I was too young to see the movie, and uh, but I, I looked at the pictures in the in the brochure that came with the double album yeah. vinyl, and it was Ben Hur. It was the score to Ben Hur, which just was mind blowing to me. I just fell in love with that, and I you know in the back it had a picture of Nicholas Rosa, who's the composer, and as you know as a little four year old kid, I sort of like that's what I want to do. Did you listen to that? Over and over, was I that listened the first to thing? it a lot. Yeah, yeah, that and some other old albums my folks had, um, and then of course I started listening to classical music and then playing piano, as taking lessons when I was seven. Um, yeah, I, don't, course, I don't know the, a lot of seven-year-olds that are listening to classical music. Well, so clearly... that was what my background was until yeah. the Beatles hit, and uh, suddenly I realized that the girls were more interested in the Beatles, <laughs> and so then I was like, okay, I want to be a rock star. So you studied uh, the classical component of music and composition at Wheaton College Conservatory of Music, yes. and then you got your master's of music degree in composition with honors, I might add, <laughs> if your Wikipedia page is correct, I from the University is. of Southern California. Yes. So you had a, uh, a stint in Southern California. Yeah, well, I mean, to, back when I was at the conservatory in Wheaton, which is just outside of Chicago, right. um, the, I was a piano major. And I thought I was going to be a piano performance major, so a Bachelor of Music in Piano Performance. And uh, when I was, it was the first quarter of my junior year, I was still a piano performance major, and I was on stage, I performed two pieces, I went to my jury, which is where the, you know, piano professors sit and grade you. Right. I got straight A's at my jury. I, you know, did a great job in my performance uh, on stage in the, in, in the big auditorium. And uh, my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife of a million years, oh, I shouldn't say that, it's 38 years maybe? It's a long time. Congratulations. Yes, thanks. Uh, anyway, Marcy was with me and she was just like looking at me, are you okay? And I'm like, yes, I'm okay. I went up, performed, everybody loved it. She goes, oh, that was great. And people patted me on the back. And it was one of several times, of course, over the three years that I performed. Um, but it, that was the one where I came off and I thought, why am I a performance major when I hate it so much? <laughs> and even when I do great, it didn't help. Right. So I was also in a band at the time. It was a rock band, and I had started writing music for this band. We were doing progressive rock and jazz fusion and all this cool stuff. And one, the drummer said to me, why don't you write music instead of figuring out other people's stuff? And I thought, oh, I never thought about writing. And I loved writing so much for the band that after I did that performance, I'm like, I, I have the wrong major. I need to be a composition major. Hmm. So I switched, and the dean of the conservatory said, it's too late. You're probably not going to be able to finish. And I said, ah, that's okay. <laughs> I don't need a degree. I've, I just, I'd rather do this because I'm going to be a rock star anyway. Right. 
which didn't turn out to be correct. But <laughs> I you, did finish actually as a composition degree, and then I went on to get a master's. You yeah. didn't have you, yes and rush were not or uh, those those were the end goals. Those were the end goals. Yes, I wanted to be as big as General Giant, <laughs> <laughs> which shows you. If you probably never heard of General uh, yep, Giant, you're, that went. Whoosh, I'm sorry. I, 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 no disrespect. Yes. Uh, so let me fast forward a little bit. How did you meet your writing partner, Mike, uh, partner Michael Salvatore? Well, actually, around that same time, he was in a band, and uh, so by the end of my undergraduate degree, he, Mike had his band, and I had my band, and we were friends, but slightly rivals. Yeah, frenemies. And, yeah, frenemies, and, but he also had uh, a couple of tape recorders. So we would have him come over and record our band. Um, and then I found a small eight track studio in the suburbs that wanted to record us. So our band went into the studio, we recorded, and I had the tape and I l let Mike listen to it. And he was like, yeah, that's, that's nice. And he immediately like, yeah, I'm, he wanted to do better. So he went and recorded at the same studio. And then he was frustrated just like I was with mm -hmm. the, the situation. So um, he built his, a studio in his house when I went to USC. So when I came back to Chicago, he had a studio and we decided to just like throw in together. So was, did he already have sort of a classical bent to him as well? I mean, no, this, no. This, this was your rock, your rock star phase. Right, this is the rock star phase. He, he, was, he was only rock star. He had no, uh, other than the fact that he, he, he married a, a violin major who was in the conservatory, that's how I met him. Mm -hmm. um, so his wife was a classical violinist. He was a guitar playing, you know, long-haired freak. I was the <laughs> classical long-haired uh, fusion type person. Uh, but the, he's, he's self-taught, um, he doesn't really read music, it's like he, he approaches everything very instinctually and so I have all the, the highfalutin education and he has got the gut approach. So you guys have kind of the, the opposites attract type situation, yeah. like the complementary yin and yang Yeah, I think that, uh, that we're complementary in a bunch of different ways which really helped have a long, long-term collaboration. So. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, you know, because he, of course, has worked with you all these years on all the, all the Halo soundtracks right. up, up to now. I mean, but, I met him when I was 18. Yeah, I, but I feel like <laughs> we don't really, we in the video game industry, at right. least here in your second career, we don't hear from Michael often. Is he, is he just kind of a private, quiet guy? Um, or are you just a loud? Are you I just am loud? the loud guy, yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, he's, uh, that's one of the yin and yang properties of our collaboration. I'm, I'm more extroverted, he's more introverted. Um, I used to be the one who did most of the client meetings. I'm always the one who's sort of pushing what's the next cool new thing that we should do. Mike has always been happy, you know, to have work and, and be, you know, have fun doing whatever it is we're doing, and if, if we had just continued to do commercial jingles, um, he would have been happy with that. But once, once I got sort of restless and said, hey, I think video games are gonna be cool and we should do music for that, he, he's very willing to sort go of with go the along. Yeah. Yeah. But he's out there now. He's, uh, he's you know, doing video games live and Good. getting on stage and being interviewed more. I, he, he deserves a ton of credit. Uh, to a certain extent, I've been sort of the face or the brand um, which isn't exactly fair, it's just the way things turn out. Well, so you mentioned, uh, I don't want to get to games just yet. So you, sure. you, you had a career in the film and, and TV world 
before video games with uh, your most recognizable piece, yes. of course, being the Flintstones Kids Vitamins jingle. Right. <laughs> how, how, did, how did that come about? Because that's, I mean, I guess, I don't even know if they still show the commercial or because I guess kids don't even really watch commercials anymore True. because it's all streaming. But I certainly, I'm 35, I right. very much remember that airing mm -hmm. all through my childhood. Yes. Uh, What's the story behind the Flintstones Kids Vitamins jingle? Well, we had been doing jingles for just a couple of years, and uh, just a—it's it's just a work for hire. Somebody's oh yeah. got a product they need shilled, and so they say, "Exactly, we need a jingle." And then they—they—they they, they call you or your agent, or well, we didn't have an agent, but uh, we had a client who um, we had done a little work for, and he came to us and said, "Hey, I—I I want you to." do a jingle for me, uh, the agency is presenting to the client, um, uh, but this is not going to be the recommended campaign, but th this is going to just be cannon fire so the client can reject it and choose something else. That's what agencies do. Interesting. Yeah, they do like three ideas and they make the, the client believe that they've worked hard on three, but they really <laughs> only want one to be the one. So this was not going to be the agency recommended campaign. Huh. So this guy, you, Jim Morris, who was the writer. Do you take that personally, or do you, is, that, is that just sort of the reality? <laughs> oh, that's the reality, yeah. yeah. And, of course, in the jingle business, you're constantly doing demos, and you get paid to do demos. Yeah. Um, but Jim came to us, Jim Morris, and we had done work for him before on other products. And he says, guys, I'm sorry, this won't be agency recommended. They're not allowing me to have money even for a demo, but would you consider doing a free demo? And by this time, we'd been doing stuff for a couple of years, so like we don't do free demos Nothing's anymore. Free. But I said to Mike, I said, we should do this anyway, because he's a friend, he's a good client, let's just go ahead and do it. So we, we, we did this version of the jingle um, with me and Mike singing, pretending to be kids. Right. And we played it for Jim, and he's like, oh, yeah, thanks, guys. That was, I know I should do this for free, and I really appreciate it. Thanks. And so we were driving back to the studio, and I said, yeah, you know, that, that was a total fail. He didn't like that at all, and I don't like it. It's a bad, what we did was bad. And Mike's like, yeah, but we're not getting paid. Who cares? And I'm like, no, let's, let's do it again, but let's, let's use your daughters, Mike, to sing, and let's, do a, let's take another stab at it. So he said, okay, I'll go home and write one. And I said, okay, I'll write one. We'll get together in the morning and see yeah. which one we like. So sure enough, I, I actually wrote it in the car, um, and then I came in the next day to, to Mike's house, and his daughters were all standing there. They were both, I think Lisa and Jana were like six and four or something. Perfect ages Perfect, for this exact yeah. thing, right? And so Mike says, hey, I got the jingle, and I taught it to the girls, and they sang it. And I'm like, wow, that's really good. I said, I think mine's better, though. Let me show you mine. And so I did, and, you know, we are Flintstones kids, 10 million strong and growing. Okay. And the girls, Mike says, oh, I think that's going to be too hard for kids. It's too syncopated. And I said, Lisa, Jana, can you sing? Boom, they sang, sang it right away. <laughs> and then uh, I had some other technical reason why, why mine was better. Like Mike's syllables, he went up to the highest note um, on the wrong syllable. And mine was 10 million strong. Right. Was the, that was the, and the I said, Mike, there, yeah. I peak on the right note. Yours is <laughs> million strong. Yun, Lian is your highest note. That's horrible. So Mike is like, yeah, you're right. So that's how we did it. Huh. We actually went and recorded that one and uh, 
But you're still, they played it for the client, and yeah, the so client you're still, said that's you're still the, one the rejected we want. one. How does? It, well, no, it wasn't. Then, it was the agency was planning on not reject on, on rejecting it. The agency was planning on just using it as cannon fodder. Right. Luckily for us, the Miles Laboratory, the actual client, yeah. said that's the we love that jingle and we want to do that campaign. So, and they're still using it to this day. There is still a version even now today. Let's see, that was 1985. So wow. we're talking 30. It, do you still get checks for that, or is it like a one time and you're you're I'm, out? Because I mean, it is it is songwriting, right? Like yes. you, you own the the publishing, or right? Uh, it, no, you, we don't own anything. Don't it's own a work anything. for hire. However, that was one of the jingles where um, because we're members of ASCAP and it's Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers. Mm -hmm. So the agency and the client are the official publishers, but in order to for them to get ASCAP royalties, they have to name who the composers are. So we get composers royalties. So you still get checks in the mail today? Yes, today I still do. Yeah. That's pretty odd. <laughs> but you could probably never would have imagined that. that you'd no, still, no, no. I mean, I, I'm going to guess they're not like million dollar checks, but it's still, but the fact that you're getting checks in I the know. mail is for fun. this yes. thing from 35 30, years ago. Well, not quite 35, about 30 years ago. Now, yeah, 31 years ago. <laughs> It is pretty astounding that we still see ASCAP revenue from Flintstones vitamins. You know, we'll, we'll, I'll get the list and you know, say, you know, whatever, days of our lives, you know, 30-second spot or whatever. So we st we're still credited, and they still use the same melody. It's new recordings. But right. like my daughter eventually, uh, when my daughter was five in 1987, so she's around your age, mm -hmm. um, we needed to re-record the and growing and she came in and she was one of the kids who auditioned for it and she won the audition not because of us the clients actually chose her they didn't know she was my daughter <laughs> so um, she ended up being the and growing girl for the next I mean that recording we used for at least 12 more years wow. or something so that actually is Screen Actors Guild money which is way better than ASCAP <laughs> money sorry ASCAP but it is uh, Screen Actors Guild union money for national TV spots um, that accumulated enough for us to be able to put her through college. So. Wow, that was my next question. Actually, yes. <laughs> that's that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, but you've I think done. Have you done a few other things that we've we probably well, have heard too? You, I'm sure you grew up hearing Mr. Clean, Mr. Oh, Clean. Oh yes, yeah. So that and I actually sang on. I sang in a group of like three of us that would sing the Mr. Clean hook, and then we you know wrote commercials for Mr. Clean. I actually saw some of them. Uh, I can find them online. Yeah. And uh, they're so 80s and <laughs> early 90s. They're just hilarious. But uh, yeah, there was a whole series for, I don't know, probably six, seven, eight years we did Mr. Clean commercials. So you, you got out of college. You did your master's. You, you wanted to be in a rock band. You left the, uh, the performing world behind. How did you even end up in this world, in this sort of Hollywood-esque world of of, <laughs> TV, of you know jingle writing and well I moved back to Chicago and I thought I was actually going to get a, a job at the American Conservatory of Music and I was going to be a professor and I for some reason after getting through my master's degree I had turned into no longer a rock star no longer wanting to be a film composer I was a serious musician right and I was going to be teaching at the conservatory in the meantime I had a 
brand new baby. We just moved back to Chicago. Uh, I needed a job. I, my father, as I told you, was a film, film director, director yeah. so I got a gig gripping uh, for commercials and, and What is a grip? Because that's a term I think a lot of us have heard. I don't even know what a grip is. A grip is a sort of glorified gopher on the okay. movie sets, but we, we actually run cables and lights. Okay. And back when it was actually hard work, where yes. the lights were big and heavy and hot, and you had <laughs> gloves and... Um, and back in the analog world. Back in the analog world, yeah. So I was a grip and worked on a couple of film sets right away. I was able, I had some connections because I knew people. And right. So I was gripping in Chicago and the producer came up to me and said, um, on the set, she said, uh, Marty, you've got a master's of music. Why don't you do music for, you know, film and television? And I said, well, I don't want to prostitute my art. <laughs> so uh, I actually said that. I actually meant it. Uh, thankfully, the very next day, the, literally the next day, the director came to me and said, hey, I've got $500 if you score this film we're working on. And I'm like, wow. yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that I figured out, I, no one had just offered me money before, and I didn't really know what my price was. So, then I, I discovered that was $500. So, you turned, you, you turned, uh, changed your mind real quick on that one. I mean, one. instantaneously. It wasn't even, I didn't even think about it. And the funny part to me is that, I mean, the whole thing is kind of funny and tragic, but... Uh, of course, I had no studio, I had no equipment. Right. I just immediately agreed to do the score of this little, and it wasn't a great, it was a Sears point of purchase film. It's like where you go into the Sears and there's a TV and you, you know, in the watches department, it'll be a film about watches or in the radial arm saws department, there'll be a film about <laughs> radial arm saws. I'm not kidding. Uh, I believe you. Yeah. So those are called industrial films and there's a million of them. Uh, the glorified industrial films are like International Harvester and you, you know, the history of International yeah. Harvester or something. So is that is that director still on your Christmas card list? Do you kind of <laughs> do you think about this? I mean, that's I have, clearly I, that I, was the turning I, his point. His name was Bo May, and he I don't know where he is now, but I he was a really fun director. He did actually we did some really nice commercials with him later because he was a, sort of a glamour shoot guy. But the first one we did was about the diamonds department and diamond rings and watches hmm. and stuff so but anyway that particular score i immediately went to mike's studio because mike had built a studio right. while i was in la and i said mike i'll split 500 dollars with you so immediately my price was cut in half yeah. so now i was a prostitute for 250 dollars and then after we we got successful almost immediately uh, we got a few other gigs and uh, we started making some money, and then we realized, you know, at the end of that first year that we actually owed taxes on money. <laughs> so basically, my price was about $166. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so then you come to, you're in Chicago, you're back to, well, at some point you you get back to Chicago. Oh, that's right? when we were back in Chicago. Okay, back to yeah, Chicago. Right. And you end, up, you end up doing the music for Riven, the sequel to Mist. Right. Well, that was many years later. So yeah. now we fast forward to 90. When did Mist come out? Uh, that would have been 92, uh, mid, 91. Yeah. So, but all that, all that time, that was all TV. That was, it was all, all TV and radio. Stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah. then we, we move up. Let's get to where you start to cro <laughs> you cross over and begin the second career. Yes. Well, I was, always, uh, I was always interested in games. I liked playing games. I played computer games. Yeah. Um, I, had the Super, I had Nintendo and Super Nintendo. I think, I can't remember when the PlayStation, first PlayStation came out, whatever. I, I was 
into that stuff. Um, but it never occurred to me that I would have a career, that there would even be a place for someone that would do real recorded music and dialogue and things yeah. like that in games. And uh, uh, a friend of mine had a son who was working, um, who was 18. He, was, he wanted to come out and visit my studio in Chicago. And he wanted to see what I did with music. And I, his name was Josh Staub. And Josh came out and saw the studio. And he says, oh, I see you like computer games. I had some computer games on the shelf. Yeah. You know, Crazy Taxi and... Yeah, back when we had boxes. Boxes games. with yes. games, yes. Yeah, uninvited. I don't know what it was. And I'm like, yeah. And he says, well, I have friends that make computer games. And I thought, well, he's 18. He lives in Spokane, Washington. I'm sure that's... You know, it seemed cute to me. He yeah. had friends who made computer games. So I said, oh, that's, you know, that's cool, Josh. He says, no, I, I got a beta version of this game that I'm working on this summer that's coming out. I'd, l I'd love to show it to you. So I said, sure, come on over to my house. And he did. He stuck it in my CD-ROM drive, right. which I had in my home studio. Well, Myst was kind of the killer app for well, games on CDs. This thing, well, it didn't come up right away. He, it, it didn't work. So he called this guy on the phone and he said hey Rand I'm at a friend's house and I can't get the beta version to work and Rand said oh you got to type in this code into hypercard to make it, make it come up in color and the the thing came up and I was just transfixed it was a revolutionary moment for me I saw a beautiful game that had a different kind of atmosphere, approached music and sound completely differently than any of the games I'd been playing up to that point. And I immediately, for me at least, I was like, this is, this is a game, literally a game changer, right? I mean, I saw that they and were doing Mist, something. this is Mist, not Riven, correct? This is Mist. Yeah. Yeah. It was, and Mist hadn't come out yet. Right. So this was the beta version. So I said, can I, can I buy stock in your friend's company? What, what can I do here? And he's like, no, ha <laughs> I knew it was good. I, I honestly, honestly knew that that was going to be a huge hit. Yeah. Um, so I, I played it all night long. He, Josh just sat next to me watching me play. It was kind of sad, really, but he was fascinated it's to see. Sad. <laughs> it's not sad. It's yeah. cool. Josh is now an Academy Award-winning animator for Disney, wow. and he worked at Cyan for years. Um, so anyway, I spent the next three years, from 93 through 96, trying to get Robin and Rand Miller to pay attention. Right, the brothers behind. The brothers behind uh, Mist, Mist yeah. and say, basically, you guys should hire me and Mike to do uh, work on your sequel. But they were, make, they were doing so well with Mist that they weren't working that hard on the sequel. <laughs> um, we finally got the gig with Riven in 96. So. 1996, I went to the Game Developers Conference. I tried to figure out what is this game business all about. Yeah. You know, I met George Sanger, the fat man. I met Tommy Tallarico. I, um, I walked around uh, the Computer Games Developers Conference to see what, what the business was like. And I thought, okay, I think this is a cool business to get into. So we got the gig to do Riven. And I told Mike we should I'm going to spend my time working on getting more game jobs. And he says, oh, okay, that seems risky. I'm going to just keep doing commercials. And I said, okay. So he sort of stayed doing commercial stuff, and I, I, stayed, I started doing 
and trying to get more jobs in the games business. So then how does Bungie come into the picture at that point? Is it, is well, it a almost coincidence that they're local? Uh, for, you know, they were in Chicago at the time, as were you. Yes, it's, that actually is a coincidence. When I would go out to Spokane, um, I would see uh, every day, like at 2 o'clock at Science Studios, there would be an alarm that would go off, and everybody would stop what they were doing, and they would all get on their local area network and start playing, this, and start playing Marathon, which I had never seen before. And they were addicted to Marathon. As a matter of fact, I think Riven took longer to make because of Marathon. <laughs> um, so I went back to Chicago, and I was on some primitive chat room that people were talking yeah. about Mist and IRC, maybe yeah, back yeah. then. And some kid got on there and said, gee, I would love to work for Cyan, but I, I live in Chicago, so I guess I would have to work for Bungie. And that was the first time I had heard that Bungie was in Chicago. I just didn't pay it. I just right, didn't nobody, know it. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought, oh, those marathon guys are right here. So I jumped off the chat, found them online, threw an email to who it may concern at, yep. at Bungie, and I said, look, I'm, I'm local. I'm working on uh, the sequel to Mist, and you guys should, should hire us to do whatever you're working on. And I got a response almost immediately from uh, Tunser Denise. If you know Tunser, he's the inside Mac Games guy, and hmm. he at the time was at Bungie producing Marathon Infinity and working on Myth the Fallen Lords, the early version of the, the beginning stages of that game. Yeah. So he was sort of a producer guy, and he said, Yeah, you should come over because he didn't think that the sound was very good so far in the game hmm. that they were making. So then I came over, I met Alex and Jason, and the rest is history. Oh, well, no, that's... <laughs> that's where we'll stop, right there. <laughs> no, no, that's where the show starts. <laughs> okay. Um, so, you've, so you end up, obviously, they, they love you. They, uh, they love your, your, your and Michael's work. You end up, you end up full-time with Bungie. Yeah. And so, you know, there's Myth, the strategy game, Myth 2. Uh, Oni was in there, which was made out in San Jose. Uh, a, a weird a satellite studio that Bungie had for a short time. Bungie West. Yeah, Bungie West. And then Microsoft comes calling during Halo's development, buys Bungie, moves you guys out to Seattle. So that's where I want to fast forward to is sure. Halo now. You've told the story of how the Halo theme originally came to you, uh, but for the benefit of me and for everyone who may not have heard it. Yeah. Please tell me that story again because <laughs> it is, you know, the Halo theme is one of the most recognizable, phenomenal pieces of musical work in well, the history of games. Just for you, Ryan, I might actually expand slightly. Please. And give you some. That's stuff what this show is for. There we you have go. all the time in the world. In depth, yeah. <laughs> um, so our studio had burned down, believe it or not, in, in 1999. And by that point, Bungie had moved from the south side of Chicago, and they were right across the block from us. So we were in the middle of doing games. We were, we were uh, I was doing sound design on Halo, mm -hmm. early Halo stuff, and working on another game called Subterra Core, um, which there's this whole other story there. But um, I found out Joe Staten uh, called yep. me, the writer at Bungie, and said, we're going to be on stage next week for Macworld 1999 with Steve Jobs. So um, we 
was like everybody scrambling to put together a, a demo that would work on the Mac. Um, but we had no, the sound engine we were working on didn't work on the Mac yet. There was no way to play music, so uh, music or sound. And so I said, look, what we should do is just let me record a score for whatever it is you have as yeah. a scripted demo. We'll just play the score simultaneously and hope everything sort of syncs up. And of course, by this point, Halo had gone from a strategy game to finding its role as, a, as, an, as an action it shooter. It was an action shooter, but believe it or not, I think for that demo, it was still third person. Right. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't even think Master Chief was an actual character, but we had one of the cybernetic marines which were going to be squads. Yeah, of them. the demo, look for it online. It, it is, the YouTube of it is, yeah, is out yeah, there. Yeah, it's pretty it's funny. Interesting. Uh, it's interesting to see because it was still not fully formed yet, but you still get the feeling that that's Master Chief uh, as the star in third person. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I, we needed to do a score. I said, let me do a, a bang up score. If we're going to be on stage in New York, let me, let me actually hire some orchestral players and some singers, let me see what I can do and make it a real production. And Alex reluctantly agreed. Alex Seropian, one of Seropian the co-founders of Bungie. I said, look, you know, you, you don't have to pay me a creative fee for this. I'll own the music. Mm, Smart. There you go. Uh, but I'll license it to you for this one thing. Yeah. And he's like, well, how much is that going to cost? And it was like, I think the expenses were, I don't know, 3500 bucks or something. Um, which for, you know, a game trailer thing was cheap. Nobody was doing this at the time. So I was driving over to Mike's house because we were back in the basement. Our studio had burned and we'd lost a lot of stuff. So I was driving back to Mike's basement studio where we sort of cobbled together something. And I said, I thought, okay, Joe had told me that the emotions for this piece should be ancient, mysterious, and epic. And so as I was driving, I thought, okay, ancient, you know, monks are ancient, so I'm going to start with some sort of monk chant, and it's got to be hooky, it's got to stick in people's heads, and then we'll go into something sort of epic and pounding, cellos and drums and stuff. But this is the part I don't think I've told people before. Um, I was, as I was driving, I was thinking, well, what, you know, I got to do a good hooky melody. Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. I've always analyzed that melody. It's got one high point. It's got one low point. It's got four sort of irregular phrases. And so, like yesterday, I actually decided to do a monk scale, which is Dorian. So I. All my troubles seem so far away. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Uh, oh, whatever it is, you know. Yeah. Uh, 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 one low point. So it's not a copy of the yesterday melody, but it, the yesterday melody inspired me to put that together because I thought, well, if I have one high point, one low point, do four irregular phrases, but still do a legitimate monk chant melody, uh, it maybe it'll have legs. So this is in the car again, because yeah. you mentioned in I the know, car. I know, I did the same thing with Flintstones, it's weird. So the car thing, like car thing, shower thing, that's a real, it's a real, that's thing. A real thing. Yes, it is. Is it? And I, I actually, I mean, the majority of the stuff I've written that people like. Uh, I, I pretty much am sitting at the keyboard, 
But I, it's funny to me that like the two most sort of memorable or successful individual melodies uh, I wrote in the car. And the same thing happens to Mike. Mike has written some great melodies that you guys know. And you know, most of the time he's with his guitar, but he writes in the shower. A melody will come to him in the shower, so like he'll throw a melody at me, and I'm like, yeah, that's great, let's do that. So if you're in the car and you've, you've, you're hitting on this in the car, <laughs> do you like hold the car over and write stuff down immediately, or are you just like going over and over trying to get home as fast as you can? Yeah. Uh, no, I never write anything down. It's funny, today now I'll, I'll pull out my iPhone and hit, hit it on the record button. Yeah. Uh, but back then it was just like, well, I'm just going to keep singing it till I get to Mike's house. And then I'm like, hey, Mike, I got the monk melody. It goes like this. And he goes, yeah, I like that. So that was, that's how that goes. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, does, and then, does, of course, it was the, the two of us plus three jingle singers that I hired to sing it. So it was yeah. the same people that I had singing Mr. Clean <laughs> were singing the classic Halo Monks. Does... does uh... All the best stuff come to you quickly because I've listened to interviews with a lot of musicians, uh, you know, like particularly in the, like the rock, you know, rock stars, and it's it seems to be a fairly common theme that all the best stuff, like all the best songs, they don't really, it, they're just they just instantly come out, and it's 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 like like oh the rock's greatest song is written in 15 minutes. Do you find that as well in your life? Uh. You know, it, it's, a, it's probably somewhat mythical. There are times when things actually you struggle with them, and sometimes those end up being really good because yeah. you go back to it and you rework it. But sometimes the things that just pop full-blown into your head, I mean, you just don't mess with that. You just hmm. go, wow, this is a gift from someplace, and I'm going to go run with it. As a matter of fact, of course, fast-forwarding, talking to Paul McCartney. We'll get to that, but go ahead. Oh, but I'm just going to say, it's funny because that yesterday melody is one of those melodies that he woke up, and he, he, he's almost like he dreamed it, and he thought, yeah. oh, this is a melody that's, I, I'm just borrowing this melody from somebody else, and he started singing it for the rest of the guys in the band, saying, what is this from? Because I'm sure I didn't just do this. And uh, I think the woman he was, uh, whose house he was living in, which was... Uh, his girlfriend at the time, the, his, the mother of his girlfriend was a professional oboist, mm -hmm. a classical oboe player. And I think she probably thought, well, these Beatles are cute. You know, I'm sure that she was somewhat dismissive. But he sang it to her and said, what is this from? And she said, no, it's, it's yours. It's not from anything. Huh. So Robert Schumann has a famous quote, which is, in order to compose, all you have to do in order to compose is remember a melody that hasn't been written yet. And that is that the way happened. it feels. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so let me get, let's let's zip up to Halo Two now okay. after Halo One because Halo Two is for me uh, it is my favorite body of work of yours. I think it's a brilliant soundtrack from top to bottom. It I think it legitimately it was almost a character in Halo Two itself. Like Halo Two wouldn't be Halo Two for me without that soundtrack. And here you'd had this smash hit that turned into a killer app for this box, this Xbox. And so here you are, you guys are breaking the sequel, which has, I don't know if I've ever seen a game, even since then, be that anticipated as Halo 2. So where do you even start with Halo 2? Uh, what point in the process does, do, do you enter from the, the composition standpoint? Well, by that point, we were living in, uh, Redmond, Seattle, Washington, right. outside of out of Seattle, and uh, we had been, you know, 
done this thing for Microsoft and it was a big hit. We, I, I think those of us at Bungie thought Halo was going to be a hit, but we weren't really sure if we were, I was only planning on staying here a year. Wow. I thought, I'm going to come out because I really like what we're doing on Halo. It was a shock that Bungie was bought by Microsoft, but I'm going to come with them and finish Halo and then move back to Chicago. Uh, Mike stayed in Chicago. He, mm -hmm. he was still, we still were partners, but he was running the business there, and I was a full-time employee at Microsoft, which I never thought would last. <laughs> and it, it didn't last, but it lasts for quite a while. Um, but I remember Jason Jones coming over saying, yeah, we, you know, I want to start working on the sequel. And I, I was like, Jason, you, you don't do sequels. You don't like to do sequels. You get distracted. You did Myth 2? No. A couple marathons? No, the, the true story is he doesn't like doing the sequels. He likes doing the first one. Right. And uh, no, he, he, Myth 2 was, was a struggle for him personally. So he was trying to give the project lead over to Tunser. Anyway, that's a whole other story. But I knew Jason just was not a fan personally. He just sort of loses interest in sequels. Yeah. That's my experience with Jason. Um, but he said, you know, I want to do this, the sequel to Halo. And I said, wow, Jason, that's not what you like doing. And he says, yeah, but, you know, we brought all these people out here. And I said, you don't owe anything to anybody. You, you know, what you owe is to do your best work. And we all made the decision to move here and do Halo 1, and that's enough. That's a great ride. Let's, yeah. If that's all we do, that's spectacular. And he says, no, there's still stuff I, that hasn't been done that I want to do. So I said, okay, if you really want to do Halo 2, let's, let's all run, get behind you and do it. And sure enough, he was interested in it for about a year. <laughs> and then the middle year of Halo 2's development, Jason had was checked out. He was working on Project Phoenix, Phoenix team right? and yeah. Gypsum and these other things that we were doing. Um, which, by the way, Joe Staten and I both knew that Jason was going to lose interest in Halo 2 after a while. Now, he had to come back in and there's the whole story of how the last year of Halo development uh, right. Everything somewhat legendary. Kind of <laughs> fell apart. And the, the game, the campaign was ultimately made sort of in that last yeah, year. Yeah, there were right. so many reasons why it needed to be sort of started over almost. It wasn't really started over, but there was, uh, you know, what we showed at, at the E3, the Earth City demo. Yeah, 2003. In 2003, turned out we got back and realized just technically we were not capable of shipping that. So product. what have you been doing? the whole time while, uh, while Halo 2 you know, is developed and then, okay, this isn't going to work, we're starting over, and then you got that last year push. Well, because I, I was audio director, I'm building you know, recording studios and making sure I've got good, a good team. We're working on all the prototypes and sound engine stuff for Gypsum and Phoenix and, and Halo 2, and we're working on everything all at the same time. So there's plenty of work to go around, including working with Joe on the script and, and talking about casting and, and doing trailers and just tons of stuff to do. So that's what I was doing all that time. So and I, then when it got sort of ripped apart and we had to like come up with some new stuff, it was a bit of a panic. I got, uh, so Jason Jones sat down with me about three years ago. Mm -hmm. and there's a huge feature on IGN uh, with him. And he told me what Phoenix was. Yeah. It's a very interesting sort of almost a pre-Minecraft type. Yeah, well, that was one of the versions thing. of it, yeah. Uh, but the gypsum thing, right. what was that? 
Have you not heard gypsum? Am I revealing I, this for the first time? I, I have I, I have heard its name, but I don't think I. It's been. Was this with uh, multiple, like different color Spartans in it? Is that this no, thing? No, 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 no. This was. Um, so Paul Breton, who ended up being the project lead, co-project lead on ODST right. years later, he was one of the designers. Um, he had actually he and, and his friend Chris Barrett had done who was art director on Destiny. He and Chris were fans back in the Myth days and they did a Myth expansion pack called Chimera for Myth. So we ended up hiring them in uh, to Chicago Bungie and they came out and they worked of course on um, Halo 1. Right. Paul didn't want to work on Halo 2. He is, he liked doing fantasy uh, um, kinds of games, third person fantasy games. So. The Phoenix team was basically sort of shut down. The, the prototype for Phoenix just turned out to be too unwieldy and not very much fun. And there was just huge amounts of concept art that was beautiful and, mm -hmm. and art and all sorts of assets that were incredible. I wish I could show you all that stuff. As a matter of fact, Ed Fries, I remember saying how excited he was for Phoenix. He was said he was more excited for Phoenix than for Halo. Wow. If you talk to him. I'll, I'll talk to Ed. Yeah. We'll, we'll take care of it. Um, <laughs> but Phoenix just didn't ever come together. It just wasn't going to turn into a game. And so instead of bringing the, that team uh, into the Halo side of production, um, it was like, go ahead, guys, start, you know, make something else. So Jason and Paul Breton and some of the other guys started working on this gypsum concept, gypsum concept which was a game very much mythical fantasy. There was a, a mythical creature that you played as in third person, a minotaur, believe mm -hmm. it or not. And you ran around and smashed things with a hammer and magic stuff happened. It was, and it was, we, it went very, very far. There wow. was a playable prototype that was a blast. So third person. I did music for it, sound effects, everything. Third person action game. Uh, was it built off of the Halo engine or was it some other? Uh, technology that you guys have developed for it? Boy, that's a good question. You should ask Paul Breton that. I think it was some sort of modified okay. Halo engine, but also possibly even remnants of the Phoenix engine. Interesting. There might even be guys here that know. Yeah, and I remember now that the gypsum engine was Halo 1 engine, yeah. Because that's, it, yeah, the, it's the only, that's, that's just interesting because the only other, the, there was only other one released game that the public, you know, that, that, that was Stubbs the Zombie got made with right, the Halo engine, right, which was exactly. Alex Seropian's game. Right. So it's interesting that there was another Halo, ga another game, not Halo, made on the Halo engine, just yes. never came out. And it had a, a, a very good playable prototype demo that it was a good, I don't know, I think you could play it for like 20 minutes and do an entire level and accomplish and something, that, and it was great. And that was, uh, did, did now Microsoft go, nah, we just want Halo from you guys, or did you guys kill it? Um, so what happened was, and I remember warning Paul Breton about this, I said, you know how you got sucked into doing Halo 1? Because when, he, when he, Paul and Chris came out with us from Chicago during the Halo days, they were working on Phoenix. Right. But Halo then became this big thing that we had to finish, so everybody got sucked into doing Halo. And Paul was, okay, once Halo is done, I'm never getting sucked back into that Halo thing ever right. again. And uh, so even though Gypsum was a great, Gypsum was a really great prototype and demo and we all loved it, um, Halo 2 just became its own thing. And 
there were no other teams at Bungie. It just became, we have to do Halo 2. And yeah. everybody who was working there, uh, the former Oni team. Yeah, um, West had shut down at that West point. West had sh shut down, but they were still sort of their own crew inside of Bungie up here in Seattle. Okay. And they were working on, they, at first they were working on a game called Monster Hunter, if you could believe that. <laughs> um, before, before Capcom did it? Before Capcom did it. And that was just conceptual, but I remember doing a, a treatment on it, hmm. uh, working with Michael Evans and Hardy LaBelle on Monster Hunter. Uh, anyway, that team got sucked almost immediately into Halo 1 multiplayer. So now we only had the Phoenix team left and they became gypsum and then Halo 2 just became a beast that was ravenous. So all of Bungie now was working on Halo 2. There was so no choice. You so got the project more or less restarts with about a year to go. You guys have a huge push. You got uh, the, the, the head of Xbox, Peter Moore, getting, getting tattooed on, <laughs> on stage. Yes. Uh, did you guys know he was gonna do that, by the way? Oh, he, the, during the dress rehearsal, uh, the dress rehearsal day. Um, it's usually the day before or something, Yeah, right? it was the day before. Yeah. Uh, he walked around all day with his arm exposed and a bloody patch on his arm. So you're, and we're you're, like, you're, yeah, right. So it's real? Or no? He was doing that just to be <laughs> just to mess, with, to mess with everybody. But we, we knew something was going to happen. And, and uh, that's, that was his, his shtick. So. so then Halo 2 is getting Maybe closer. it was real. <laughs> he won't. He still won't say. I ask him every time I see him. Well, if it was real, wouldn't he show it to you? I, exactly. <laughs> that's my thought as well. But uh, let's get back to you. Yes. Okay. And that's uh, so the Halo 2 soundtrack. Yeah. You got it, it's all the games coming together uh, over the, that final year. So basically, most of 2004, maybe the tail end of 2003. Do you have the likes of Steve Vai and Breaking Benjamin and Incubus and all these guys? Are they coming to you because they're fans of Halo, or 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 did you go get them? I'm curious how that soundtrack became what it was. Yeah, that is um, Nile Rodgers. So apparently, this is the story I heard from Niall. Okay. Uh, after I finished... He, and he, Niall, he sort of published the, the soundtrack. Is well, that... what happened was on, we, we finished Halo 1, um, and I went to Bungie, or to Microsoft, and I said, hey, you know, there's enough music in here. We, I mean, the, and the fans expect this. We should release a soundtrack for Halo 1. And Microsoft is like, well, we don't you know, normally do that. We need to think about it. We need to get people in a room and talk. And they just, I mean, they dragged their feet for a couple of months at least. And I would kept going back to them saying, please, would you ship the Halo 1 soundtrack? I mean, I, I, I've got it ready to go. I could just make a CD and go. Yeah. And uh, that's just not the way Microsoft did things. They had to analyze the business yeah. stuff. Anyway, meanwhile in New York, uh, Nile Rogers, I think the story he told me was that he was working with uh, Maroon 5, which was just starting out, I think, in the studio. But they kept like leaving, and he would come in and like, why aren't you guys finishing this thing? And they're like, now you got to see this new game we're playing with, this new box, it's the <laughs> Xbox, this game Halo. So Nile went and watched them play the game, and uh, he he said. Wow, that's a really cool game, but like, what is that music? He was like really struck by the music. So he then made it his mission to find who created the music. And so one day I was called into this room at Microsoft and they were gonna talk about the soundtrack. And I come in and it's like the fifth time I've had a meeting and yeah. like, nothing ever happened. And there was this guy in this white suit with a beret and dreads. And I mean, he just 
so it's just this cool guy. Yeah. And they said, yeah, Marty, this is Nile Rogers. And Nile stands up and goes, Marty, I've been waiting to meet you. And I'm like, well, I've been waiting to meet you. <laughs> so um, he pitched Microsoft and, let, and they let his company, which is the first time they had ever, that Nile's company had done this, they released Halo 1 soundtrack. And it was the first game soundtrack released by his company and it was pretty successful. Um, so when we started working on Halo 2, uh, and you own all that music, you said no, earlier. No, 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 no. There's a whole other story there. <laughs> I'd like to think that I own it, but I, I have a connection to it. Let's just say that. Yeah. Um, it's tentative. <laughs> I've never been the smartest business guy, by the way, just so you know. Anyway, uh, hopefully that'll change here at Highwire. That's the point. Um, but anyway, Niall came to me and said, hey, I'm getting all sorts of requests from people. They, you know, now that we've released the Halo 1 soundtrack, they'd like to be involved in the Halo 2 soundtrack. And that was new to, new to me. It never even occurred to me that you know, other musicians would be involved. Right. And so he says, Marty, I'll get you anybody you want. You know, I can get you, I can get you Steve Vai, I can get you Jeff Beck, I can get you. He starts naming all these people. And I'm like, well, yeah, okay, yes, sure, great. So um, sure enough, at one point he called me and said, yeah, uh, get a session in Seattle because Steve Vai is coming into town, he wants to play. And I said, okay. All right. So that's how that got set up. So Niall Rogers did that. And then another time he called me and said, um, Incubus is performing and they love Halo and they want to write some stuff and do some stuff. So I went to a dress rehearsal here in Seattle with Incubus before their show and they started playing me stuff they wanted to do and I was like it was just this great thing they they came to me so they were all Halo fans they were all Halo fans including and I know I've said this someplace but I'll say it maybe more people will notice now because we're on my IGN with Ryan McCaffrey this Stop. is great no. <laughs> please uh, one of the other guys who was asking to come into the studio and play Halo and play the early versions of Halo 2 was John Mayer. I think, I, I think I've heard the story, but yes. yes, please go ahead. So anyway, John liked the music and he said, you know, if there's anything, can I be part of the Halo 2 soundtrack? And I'm like, well, sure, that'd be great. I said, it took me a while to realize that he was not just sort of a pop artist. Blues he's guy. a really great guitar player yeah. and he's got great ideas. I and mean, he was a lot of fun to, to meet. So I said, sure, uh, how are we gonna work this out? And he goes, ah, yeah, let's leave the agents out of it. Just yeah, send he's me uncredited, some stuff. right? He's, he's uncredited. He says, don't credit me, I'll get in trouble. He says, but just put my, uh, my gamer tag in and special thanks, and then I can point to all my friends and see there <laughs> I am. So yeah, he plays guitar on a couple of the, the tunes in Halo 2, and it's do you really remember which, Do you stuff. remember which ones so we can look it up? Um, I'm putting you on the spot. I don't remember the num the name of the tunes. One, I, it's a high guitar part that goes. Dun, dun, dun. It's just sort of this overlay on top of the sad strings part. I probably called it sad strings number three or something, but it's it actually has an official name, and I think it plays over the end credits. Okay. And then uh, there's another piece that he plays on. But I just sent him a bunch of stuff, and he just improvised and sent wow. it back to me. And I'm like, yeah, this is great. I'll use this. And how about, I can't imagine, is Steve Vai playing Halo? Or is this just Steve Nile Rodgers hooked Halo. you up? This was, this was Steve Vai being interested. 
but he hadn't played Halo. But when he, we showed him the stuff, he was like, wow, this is amazing. But he played uh, So the stuff meaning here. the game or the stuff meaning your soundtrack? Well, I mean, he liked the music, but yeah. he, he hadn't played the game. But when he did, after he did the session, he did a concert this night, that night at the Paramount, and then we went to see him. So Marcy and I see him. He comes out, and everybody's flocking around, and he came right to me. <laughs> and he said, Marty, I just want you to know that, you know, thanks for the, the three-hour warm-up today. It just was great. I'm like, wow, I thought maybe you played way too much. He goes, no, it was perfect warm-up for the concert. He said, but I, he says, like, before the concert, I called my two sons, who were at the perfect age, like 11 and 13 yeah. or something. And he said, yeah, guess, guess what I did today? What, Dad? I played on the Halo 2 soundtrack. And he says, thank you, I, now I'm a cool dad. <laughs> and I'm like, how, that's not even possible. You're Steve Vai, how, cool, how much so cooler can you be? Did you direct? Because like his, his, his guitar riff of sort of the main theme yeah. is one of the best pieces on that soundtrack. Yeah. Did, did you really direct him or did, you just, did he just latch on to the theme and then sort of riff it? Uh, well, in terms of riffing, that's Steve Vai. He, his, his improvisational skills are second to none, seriously. He's one of the best. But no, I said, it would be great if you could play these melodies and, and then play again and play some rhythm under it. And, and I, 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 he and I went through a bunch of the pieces and put it together that way. Uh, but of course, like, you know, he came up with his own way of doing it, and it was just like, yeah, that's perfect, that's great, so. Uh, so, no Maroon 5? Because they're the <laughs> ones, that, that Maroon, you know, Adam I Levine know. and those guys um, aren't asking to be on the Halo 2 soundtrack? Uh, they're, they're, they, no. can't, they can't finish recording songs about Jane because they're too busy playing Halo, and they're not I, one of the people banging on Nile <laughs> Rogers' door to be on the soundtrack? I think they were, and as a matter of fact, I think there was a point I think I haven't seen that. I didn't know Maroon 5 at the time. Right, not a lot of people did. And uh, I think I have Adam Levine's recording singing the Halo Monks. So I don't think that ever got used anyplace, but huh. I have that. It, it, but it seems to me it did get used in something. Uh, so anyway, you should talk to Adam and find out about that because <laughs> Niall did I'll send try. me something that Maroon, or at least Adam Levine had done. But somehow it just never seemed to be, it didn't go any further than that. Right. But even the, like the lead singer for Incubus did a, a really cool piece that was based on... Um, there are two Incubus pieces on that soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah. And, and both one of them actually has uh, um, Follow, I think, it's, I think it was yes. called Follow. Correct. But there's a whole verse and chorus of him singing. And then somehow the, the legal stuff never got huh. uh, used, so it couldn't be on the soundtrack. But he's... There are recordings of Follow with the lyrics, which is that piece. So I just use the instrumental version. Um, and anyway, it's just funny that how those things work out. Uh, and then Breaking Benjamin was just another like out of the blue. And, and I mean that, the, that song that's that had to be written for Halo, right? Yes. Because it's about your ghost, and so did did you did you write that or did they write that? No, they wrote that. They wrote yeah, it. That was Benjamin. What's, whatever his name is, he has the band Breaking Benjamin, but it's just him and he, he writes all the stuff and uh, he came in and I, I said, well, I don't know where I'm going to use a song with lyrics, but... You used, the, the, uh, well, you used it without the lyrics right. in a big hunter fight about right. two-thirds of the way through the game. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah it turned that. out really cool. Which was funny because there were, there were, that was definitely controversial within Bungie. 
is the amount of like, oh, Marty's gone Hollywood, he's <laughs> using all these like rock stars, and, and Halo 2 has got too much rock and roll and guitar in it. Nope, nailed it. Okay. Nailed it. Uh, so on the Halo 2 note, how, it's, it's time, somebody needs to answer me this question because okay. I can't get an answer. Okay. How was Halo 2 supposed to end? <laughs> what was the last level? Uh, how was it supposed to end? We went through the denial phase where Bungie denied it was ever supposed to, like, no, that was, and we, we've accepted there have been, yeah. it's all, we're all on the up and up, but no one will tell me, I need to know how Halo 2 was supposed to end. So, I think the statute of limitations has run out on this ridiculous private story. The floor is yours. Uh, um, not only do I have the original script that says Dervish instead of Arbiter, I have, I think I still have the recordings of all the actors. And we actually recorded uh, the original ending with the actors. So I have that someplace. If I went back to my archives, I bet you I could actually put together the ending uh, scenario with Michael Wincott as the prophet of uh, truth. Uh, basically, you were supposed to go back to Earth City, uh, find the Ark, and at that point, that was the Ark that opened up. Right. Remember the, with the thing coming down? Yep. and that, that was where the Ark was. It wasn't some other place. That, was, that thing on the earth was where the Ark had been buried by the Covenant. And the Prophet of Truth had come back to there, and the ending was uh, you and the Arbiter chasing, or I think together, you, you and the Dervish, yes. uh, chasing the Prophet of Truth through the Ark and uh, having a grand and glorious conclusion on earth, finishing the fight right there on earth. <laughs> Which, of course, the line "finish the fight" came in later when we had to rewrite everything and do a cliffhanger. Which was, oh, by the way, just so painful for me um, and everybody at Bungie to uh, to to throw that all out. We just couldn't finish the plan. It was just impossible. So everything got rejiggered, and we had the cliffhanger to end all cliffhangers. Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Check out new episodes Mondays and Fridays for a wide variety of topics and news episodes. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Rage on. Did you throw your controller when you finished Halo 2? I will tell you my personal story of that. No one cares. I'll tell it to you off the air. But okay. I, have, I do have a good thing that I, I have a good story about okay. my reaction to the end of Halo 2. Okay, good. Uh, so let's talk about Halo 3. Yeah. Does it get harder each time you compose music for the same game in, in the series? I mean, you're up to round three at this point. Yeah. I mean, it, it, does it just get progressively harder for you personally as you're, as you're trying to score this? Well, it was one of those things where I had to... Yes, it does. I mean, I had to make a decision. Um, you know, I, all of a sudden, there were a lot of themes that became so uh, iconic for Halo that to a certain extent, I was kind of, I had to do something with those themes to make sure that not only were the fans happy, but it actually made sense. Right. And by the time we got to Halo 3, our plan was Halo 3 was the ending of this grand and glorious space trilogy. We were going to that was going to be the end of Halo. Dropping the mic. That's this it. This is it. We're done. So I, I just, in the most general way, I thought, well, Halo 1 had this kind of score. Halo 2 kind of was, 
had, rel you know, uh, it was related to the Halo 1 stuff, but it had a lot of new stuff and a lot of guitar and rock and roll. Um, I thought, well, on Halo 3, let's go back to sort of what we did in Halo 1. So the big plan was A, B, A prime, right. which is a form that I like for music, right? So I thought, well, a Halo 3 will just sort of be a return to some of the classic Halo stuff. But this time I'm going to try to use big orchestra and less samples and synth. So we revisited some of the, the pieces from Halo 1, but orchestrated them up and, and recorded them with big stuff. So um, that's how Halo 3 music came about. It was sort of like a return to where we were to close it off. So I could conclude with like all the big Halo themes sort of coming to an end. Yeah. So when it came time for ODST, which, <laughs> by the way, I was like, wow, we're not done. <laughs> in my opinion, so that's my second favorite piece of, of your body of work. Okay. I, I love the ODST soundtrack. How did you approach that? Because obviously it's tonally completely different. Yeah. It's just, it's piano, it's jazz influenced. How, how, does, how, do you, how does that come, where does that come from? Uh, well, once again, I'm going to give Joe Staten a lot of credit for just conceptually inspiring me to do something different. I mean, I, I was really like, I thought we were going to be done with Halo. Um, but during this whole period, we had figured out a way to negotiate ourselves back to being just Bungie. Right. So, you know, two months before we released Halo 3, we were officially independent again. Right. But part of the deal was we still owe our more publishers a couple more Halo games. One of them was going to be a Peter Jackson game. Chronicles. Which fell through, which according to my memory of the contract meant that we didn't owe them that in-between game. But for some reason it made sense financially and everything else to go ahead and do uh, an expansion on Halo 3, which turned into Halo 3 Recon. Recon at the time, yeah. Which, I still have the shirt that mm -hmm. says Recon on it. Um, which we had to change the name to, ODST for Orbital Drop Shock Troopers. Um, but Joe and Paul were going to head up that little team because they were the ones who actually had gone to... Now remember, Paul Bertone is the guy who's like, I'm through with Halo, please yeah, let me stop working on Halo. <laughs> and so he was going to work with uh, Peter Jackson. So Paul and Joe had gone to New Zealand to work with Peter Jackson. Eventually that fell through, but it was like, okay, why don't you guys do this expansion pack for Halo, but make something completely different. And so they came up with the idea of you know, the the um, was it the was that the rookie? Was the rookie yes, in absolutely. Yeah, it was the rookie, right? And sort of a an in between, like what happened in Earth City between Halo Two and Halo Three? What was what was it like there for orbital drop shock troopers who were blown off course when the Prophet of Regret left Earth's atmosphere? Right. And so they, they came up with this idea of like, let's, and I think this was mostly Joe's way of describing it, but he wanted a film noir detective story, you know, a day and a night in the city, and what would that be like with this, you know, group of, of troopers and, and a rookie trying to find his, his buddies. And it was, you know, this sort of cool mystery of solving where did they go, what did they do, and all that. And so Joe said, yeah, let's, Let's make it like a film noir, you know, with like a smoky, you know, you know, Miles Davis and, and uh, jazz and stuff. And I'm like, wow, okay. 
jazz. Who would have thought jazz, jazzy stuff for, um, for a Halo game? But I thought that's a really cool concept. It's just going to feel totally different. Everybody will know immediately they're not playing, you know, the old Halo. They're yeah. playing something new. And the only thing I didn't want to do is I didn't like the idea of muted trumpet, so I just did sort of smoky, breathy uh, saxophone. Well, and so a little piano, a little say, saxophone. A good bit of piano, and you're, yeah, of course, yeah. so did you do, since you're yeah, that's classically, that's all you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, every time you hear piano, pretty much that's me playing. I think there might be a few times over the years where Mike had sent me something that he played on the piano, and it's beautiful, like, like never forget his mics. Um, it's a great piece. Yeah, it's a, it's a spectacular piece. And, but I didn't like the way he played it because that's not his natural instrument. So I, I played it myself and you know, added whatever little spice I can. But, uh, so usually if you hear something that's got sort of a rock drum feel to it, that's Mike. But every once in a while, I'll like, what would Mike do? And then I'll do a rock drum thing. Hmm. So, and then Mike is like, well, what would Marty do? And he would, he'll play some little piano thing. And I'm like, gee, I, I wish I had done that. But let me reperform it because I'm better at actually playing. But that it's his ideas, so it's good. Uh, two, so yeah, two two part question. That's sort of the same question, but so which which is your favorite Halo game, mm. and which is which is your favorite Halo soundtrack of your? Uh, I, I'll let you sort of separate those if you want to. Sure. But um, I'm very curious. Wow, that's it's tough because they're like picking your favorite child. Okay, uh, I think just because of the significance of Halo 1, I think that's my favorite game. We, sure. we did so many things that we didn't think we could do, that nobody else had really done before, that there's something about Halo 1 that I, I have a real soft spot in my heart for. Uh, but I actually think, in terms of music, I might like ODST the best. So uh, may, I don't know if it's just because it's so different. Yeah. Um, it just has a more personal feel to me. Uh, I still remember the first piece I did was I just was queuing in off of the idea that it was going to be a rainy, dark night with rainy streets, and, and you know, here I'm living in Seattle, so I'm, I'm sitting at my piano, and I just start playing this piece that I eventually, I think I called Rain. I think it's called Other Things, too, but it was the, it was the first piece I did. It was piano, and then a little saxophone melody comes in, so anyway, I just enjoy that score. Uh, is there a piece from your past that's Super incredible that you that you love, <laughs> but it was it was either cut from you know that you that you left it out of a game because it was too different or too weird or just tonally didn't fit. Is there is there some just gem in your in your archive somewhere that we haven't heard? Uh, wow, that's good. Well, you know the funny thing is, the on Halo Two, the unforgotten piece. I hate to admit this, but the reason it's called Unforgotten is because Mike had sent me this piece, and I sort of redid it, but it never seemed to have a place in the game. So I found it when I was right at the end of everything, and I, I like, oh, yeah, this piece. So that's why it's called Unforgotten, because I had forgotten about it. And um, I think I snuck it into the menu music, and then it's on the soundtrack. Um, and then that turned into Never Forget later on. Hmm. Um, so that's one that was almost left off. But there's a piece from Halo 1 that I was like, usually what I do when I think about scoring a movie or any sort of storytelling, um, if I'm doing some preliminary work on score stuff, uh, 
I know there needs to be scary stuff and intense stuff and heroic stuff and poignant stuff. And usually there's, well, there's romantic stuff, so there needs to be a love theme. So there's actually a Halo love theme out there that uh, never saw the light of day. Which, you know, it's funny because it probably could have a little bit more in Halo 3 because the Master Chief Cortana relationship seemed to actually become like a thing, which right. is still strange. But I never brought the actual original love theme back, so. Hmm. Maybe someday. Go. Maybe someday. Uh, so now we're, we, we're moving through time. We're working pretty <laughs> chronologically. Let's, we're getting to destiny now. Bungie has regained its freedom from Microsoft, you mentioned, sort of during the ODST reach process. Uh, what was working on destiny like for you? Uh, well, we, while we were working on Reach and, and ODST, actually, there was another small team starting to work on Destiny. That was, that was going to be the future. Yeah. Um, so when we shipped Reach in 2010 and also moved to a big, much bigger studio in Bellevue, uh, those of us who were finishing up Reach, and usually the audio team is like the last ones to finish, and we couldn't build out new recording studios and change our tech in the middle of finishing reach. So we were the last ones in the old building at mm -hmm. Bungie. Everybody else was over in the new buildings starting to gear up for the big destiny push. So we came in and I remember, I think it was Marcus Lado, who was the project lead, had been art director on all the, dust, all the halos. And then he was project lead on reach. So Marcus and I were the two sort of directors that came in to see, okay, where's Destiny? What's going on? Bring us up to speed. Yeah. And it was a little bit scary because it was not as, as up to speed as we had sort of been led to believe. Um, so suddenly we had um, a lot of people who were trying to figure out what they were going to do on Destiny. We had a very, very, very big team. It was getting bigger all the time. By that point, it Hundreds, was- Hundreds, right? Yes, yeah, so with that time we were, at the beginning of 2011, um, end of 2010, whatever it was. Uh, yeah, I think it was the very end of 2010. Um, I think Bungie had grown to three to 400, maybe 400. And just trying to figure out what everybody was just gonna do. Like, what are they, what's everybody gonna be working on? And how do we organize ourselves? And so there was a lot of that going on. A lot of like, who's leading, uh, you know, how do we, what is Jason's vision? Who's, who's doing what? Um, so it was, it was a conf relatively confusing time for me. I didn't know exactly what we were going to do. We were going to do an entirely new engine. Of course, our, our programmers decided to completely th throw away the, the Halo engine and start over from scratch. Um, uh, I have so are you just working on that. tools or are you working on, you know, since, since, since the game's not, it's still just in this nebulous thing, it, it what, was, are you, what are you doing day to day? At, as yeah, at that point, um, I would say we were, Bungie was still in pre-production on Destiny, but it had been in pre-production for almost three years. So to guys like Marcus and myself, we were really hoping to see hit the ground running, now we're into production. So I was hoping that the engine was somewhat stable, the tools are ready to go, you know, I'm, I'm scoring starting to score encounters and understanding the story and casting and doing all this work right. that we would, should be doing by that point. And that wasn't to, to happen. 
So there were a lot of discussions going on at that in 2011 about what should we be doing. And that's when um, Pete Parsons came to me and said, hey, you know, what can we do to get music going? And I said, yeah, I said, Pete, you know, I have a 10 year body of Halo work that we're just hitting the delete button on. <laughs> like we can't, I can't dip back into that for anything. Um, we can't even do marketing material or PR stuff. I mean, if you think about the amount of PR and marketing material that we did during the Halo days, I mean, all of that was like, oh, here's a piece from the game and here's a piece from the soundtrack. Right. I mean, I'll modify it or do something, mm -hmm. but we had tons of material, um, even for team meetings, you know, we could play Halo music to get people jazzed up. Well, that all was gone. And I said, I don't have a library of anything. I got to start from scratch. So um, he said, well, what, what normally, you know, how does this usually work? Because he wasn't there at the beginning of Halo. And I said, well, you know, I need like a story. I need a trailer. I need something to score to get some themes going. And he, so he came to me and he said, what if you just did something that was standalone music that somehow reflected destiny in some way? He says, could you do that? Could you just write music for something that's not specifically for anything, but it's just a pile of music for Destiny. And I said, yeah, I need to come up with a, something that has structure to it and has, you know, I can get a, I can hook a story onto that won't tie our hands for the actual Destiny yeah. story. Because at that point, there was no Destiny story. So I came up with the concept of Music of the Spheres. There was, at that point, there was the big hero sphere called the Traveler, that that's, that was a concept that we had. It was just gonna be floating over the last safe city on Earth. And that's really what we, we had were the just sort of grand and glorious concepts. Right. And I thought, well, there's a sphere, um, there's an ancient concept called music of the spheres that goes back to Pythagoras, and the spheres were always the planets, but they were the planets you could see with the naked eye and they meant wandering stars, so the moon and the sun were considered planets. So I thought, well, you know, there's a classical emotional story that's told by each one of these classical planets. You know, Mercury is speed and mercurial. Uh, the moon is sort of, you know, feminine and uh, would have poignant and, and, you know, themes of you know, slight lunacy, that's where that comes from. And I thought, well, if, if the darknesses come, each one of the planets has a slight a darkness side to it. So Mars is super warlike, not just heroically war. Right. And Jupiter is the king of planets, so it could be heroic, but still somewhat like tragic. So there could be like the, the concept of a fallen king. So, so there's a lot of introspection going on here. Huge on introspection. Yeah. So I, I, I came to Pete and I said, I got an idea, something that could inspire me to, to write a bunch of music. And then these themes could be then used for destiny. And I, knowing that like that three minute piece I did in 1999 for Halo ended up being rearranged and pieces, snippets of it were inspired other pieces that lasted for 10 years. I thought, what if I do like, 50 minutes of music with, you know, eight movements and this whole thing, you know, maybe there would be just a whole lot more musical material that we could continue to work on for, yeah. for the next decade, perhaps. 
So that's where that came from. And so um, in 2011, uh, that's pretty much what I worked on. Um, and then Paul McCartney came into the picture. And that was my very next question. <laughs> How does Paul McCartney come into the picture? Um, How does a beetle right. get involved with, with Destiny? All right, well, let's just go back just a little bit. There was a point when we were all watching E3 when Joe Staten came out to show ODST and also announced that Reach was just around the corner. And so we watched him do that. We had done a trailer for that and a whole show for that. And Joe left the stage and then rock, Beatles rock band was being introduced. Right. The very next thing that came out were Paul and Ringo, Ringo on stage. Yeah. And I remember watching that on TV back here and I was like, wow, look how close we came to the Beatles. Like they were on stage right after Joe Staten. And I thought that would be the closest I'd ever come to the Beatles. Well, then we start working on Destiny. And a guy named Lev Chapelsky from a company named Blind Light in Los Angeles, who had been uh, a guy and a company that had helped us get different voiceover talent uh, over the years. He has really good connections. That's how we got you know, Keith David and Ron Perlman and Nathan Fillion and, you know, um, Trisha Helfer and Katie Sackoff and, and you know all these people. Anyway, he called me and he and his assistant uh, called and said, "Hey, we were sitting here wondering, you know, you've done the Nile Rodgers thing, you've done Steve Vai, you've done these actors. What would be the next cool thing for Marty to do <laughs> on this new thing?" I'm like, "Oh, well, hey, I'm glad you're thinking about me. Thanks, not, uh, uh, Lev." And so he said. He says, what do you think about Paul McCartney? <laughs> so this is the very beginning of 2011. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, love, that's, that's great. I mean, yeah, knock yourself out. I said, well, first thing I think I said was like, well, what, do you have a connection with Paul McCartney? And he goes, no. And I'm like, okay, well. I said, why are you even thinking him? And he says, well, we saw him come out at E3, and it looked like he was interested in the fact that he was getting a whole new fan base based on the video games. Right. And we all know that Paul likes to explore new mediums. And so I thought, well, that's a long shot, but you know, sure, go ahead. And over the next few months, uh, apparently he figured out how to get a hold of Paul McCartney's people. Wow. So at GDC in 2011, I was doing a keynote and Lev came up to me right before I was about to do my keynote thing and believe it or not the keynote that year I was doing was the design and audio keynote combined which hmm. if Jamie knew that he'd be laughing because why I'm doing a design keynote is hilarious but anyway it was brilliant just for the record of course <laughs> um, Lev came up to me just before I was introduced and he said Marty I got the meeting and I said what meeting he says well the meeting with Paul and then like, and now Marty O'Donnell. I'm like, oh, no. my brain was just exploding. So I, I sure enough, he did. He, so like, like two weeks later, I was flying to LA to have a 20 minute meeting with Paul McCartney. And Are you super nervous at that oh, point? Oh, I was ridiculously nervous. I, I mean, mean, you're an accomplished guy in your field, but you're getting a one-on-one. -on -one but with... you know, like you said, I was going to be nervous. I was nervous. As a matter of fact, even just flying down to have a meeting with Paul McCartney, I, I already thought that was like the pinnacle because the fact that I was scheduled to meet with him was just good enough. But I really didn't think he was going to show up. Hmm. 
So I was told it was the end of his day. He had 20 minutes to give. So sure enough, he walks in and he goes, hello, it's me. You know? <laughs> and I was just like, wow, it is. It's actually Paul McCartney. So he was really gracious. We sat down, we talked. He, you know, he had his, his bagel and tea. Um, and I started showing him, like, here's how music and games works. Here's some stuff. And then he started asking me questions, and we talked about music, and then we started talking about kids and grandchildren, and two hours went by. Wow. And I was, I remember thinking to myself, well, that, that's longer than he was expected to be here. So we were, once we were done, um, he, I stood up and I went over to shake his hand, and he just came over like, oh no, come on, you know, and he gives me this big hug. I thought, okay, well, that's a good first date. <laughs> that was, that, maybe something will come of this. And uh, sure enough, yeah, he almost immediately wanted to start working on music. And we started trading music back and forth. You know what I should do? Maybe I could do this for you. One of the things I'll give you, which I haven't given to anybody, is a Paul McCartney voice message that I have on my phone. That would be says, cool. Hello, Marty, this is Paul from England, which, is we'll see how good an imitation that was but um <laughs> hey marty it's paul here calling from england just to let you know that uh, i've had a chance to listen to um the piece you sent back and i really like it i think it's really cool uh so i think it's a good direction and i like what you've done with it you put you know a few of the constituents together and um i think it works very well so there you go. I was just hoping to say that in person to you, but uh, I've said it to your machine, so consider this as being in person. All right. See you. Bye-bye. Uh, it was the only time he left a voice message because from then on I, was, I picked up my phone whatever time of day it was yeah. ringing because I never knew. Um, but it was funny because he said Paul from England. I'm like, oh, yeah, that Paul. <laughs> like, I don't even think he even realizes how recognizable his voice is. But we worked together for like the next two years and, and Mike and I went to New York and we worked with his band. Um, what does Mike say when you call him? Oh, at that point, Mike was in Chicago still. And I had told him, I said, Mike, don't tell anybody, but I'm actually maybe gonna have a meeting with Paul McCartney. And this is the funny thing was for years at our studio, we would tell our secretary that we had, our receptionist, um, we would say, you know, hold all the calls unless it's Spielberg. You know, that was the funny yeah. thing to say. But it never occurred. We, we might have said, hold all our calls unless it's McCartney. But we wouldn't even, that would be like sacrilegious. Right. We would never even use a Beatle as a joke because <laughs> it was like, so that was so out of, out of reach. So Mike was, he just couldn't believe it. It's like, there's no way this is happening. How does he not get to come along too? He's your partner. Well, because Mike was still in Chicago. At this point, 2011, Mike hadn't moved out here he yet. He doesn't get on a plane and come. <laughs> I know, come to that I meeting? know. Well, because I mean, we're you know, it was a bungee thing, and like we, whatever. Yeah. It's like yeah. So uh, yeah, it wasn't long after that that I started. You know, I had started working on the music of the spheres themes. I had it kind of mapped out. I had each one of the eight pieces kind of uh, thematically figured out. Right. And I'd even shown some of that to Paul, and he, he was like really interested in that. So I didn't know exactly how he wanted to work with us. It was, at the beginning, it was just sort of a tentative thing. I remember coming back to Bungie, and I, I said, uh, 
I said, okay, well, this, is, this could work. I mean, he might want to work with us. I said, but I think I have to put my fanboy thing away and think about the product. And, you know, first of all, I, I have to make sure Paul actually trusts me creatively. Right. And then number two, I have to believe that what we do together is better than what we would have done alone. And I remember one of the guys saying, well, how long is that going to take? <laughs> I was like, yeah, well, if I knew that, right? I mean, it, it was a, a big risky thing. And it's when you're talking about creative collaboration, you, can't, you don't just put people in a room and then magic happens. You, you don't know if it's going to work. And the, so it took, you know, it took some effort and different meetings and different studios and, and combining music together and working together to, to really get to that point where we felt like we were comfortable with each other. And I went to Abbey Road one time and worked with them in the, at the upstairs studio. And there was a, a, an earlier time I, had, I met him at Capitol Records in LA after we had done some stuff together. And what, at the beginning, we were mostly taking ideas that Paul sent me and sort of fleshing them out and making them sort of the way we would make them into game right. music and or orchestrating them the way we thought would be good. We sent him back and he liked what we did. But when I met him at Capitol Records, I went into the studio and I sat at the piano. I had a bunch of stuff to show him. And then he says, well, what's going on with that Music of the Spheres thing? Because, and so I showed him some stuff and he goes, he goes, well, you know, what if, you know, what if I, what if some of the stuff I'm giving you gets put into some of that? And I stopped for a second, and I said, um, well, and he says, he says, Marty, there's no one in the room, there's no cameras, there's no recording, it's like, you know, you can say whatever you want, you know, I could say, fuck you, Marty, and you could say, fuck you, Paul. That, that really happened. And I, I remember my brain just sort of exploding. I'm like, oh my gosh, did he just say that to me? I would never, you know, it's like I would never. He just gave you way. permission to tell yes. him to f off. I know. <laughs> you might have to bleep that. That's okay. Okay. This is the internet. No one it's cares. It's the internet. Um, so, I said, well, Paul, you're, like, you already told me that you're, you know, you if you if you wanted to really collaborate with someone, you would you know, you'd call Bob Dylan. He actually had said that at our first meeting. <laughs> it was about something else, but I remembered him saying that. Yeah. So I thought, okay, so he, maybe he's not interested in collaborating. And I said, and you're, you're known as a great collaborator, but you're also known as this great individual artist. I, I don't know which way you want to work. And he says, oh, no, no, no. I, he, says, I, I, he says, I love when you take some of, the, some of my music and add it to your music and it becomes our music. So as soon as he said that, it was like that was that moment where you know, he trusted me, and I was convinced that what we could do together would be better than. And you died on the spot. I'm I did, talking to a ghost right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I was, it was like that was what I was waiting to hear. And I said, okay, well then. And I immediately I sat down and like the opening piece, one of his melodies was da 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 da. That was an early, early melody he'd sent to me. And I didn't know, but he had had a whole sort of a piece that sort of was based on that, and, and it wasn't necessarily as destiny-ish as I wanted. And I had this piece that went da 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 da, which is the Traveler's, the, it was the opening movement to Music of the Spheres. And I played this little thing and then I threw his melody on top and it just fit really nice and a different harmony underneath. And he goes, oh yeah, I love that. And so 
like right away I knew that, that I could take his stuff and combine it with our stuff and make it, everybody is, make it this whole thing, so. And then you retired and yeah. that was the end of. No, and then <laughs> we worked like crazy to make all eight movements and over the, over the summer of 2012, I got one of my friends who was, had been in the movie business for years, Mark McKenzie, who's a great orchestrator, and he joined me and Mike, and we all worked together, and then we all... Did Mike, tell me, did Mike get to meet Paul McCartney? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, good. finally, yeah, right. no, he got to meet Paul, and he even got a guitar lesson from Paul. So he, they, they, you know, he just sat across from Paul, and Paul says, oh, no, let me show you. And he did this thing with his guitar. And then uh, at the end, I think Paul even says, well, that'll be 20 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> so, so. And so then we all went to Abbey Road together. So that was in New York. And then we went to Abbey Road and recorded for four days. And Paul came in for that. My wife was with us, and she met Paul. And Mike was there, and Mark McKenzie. And it and was an absolute high point. And everyone in your life is now like, you're the king, you are the man now, right? You're, you're sta by virtue, of, you're, you're, you're just walking on eggshells, well, or rather walking on, on air at this yes. point. And, and, you know, I, to, to me, it's sort of like, I've always talked about, and this is just because I'm a fanboy, right? I'm a Beatles fan and a Paul McCartney fan. So to me, it's like, Paul is one of those guys who is you know, if he wants to meet any world leader you can name, they're going to make time for him, yeah. right? I mean, the Pope has an audience with Paul McCartney. That's sacrilegious, but it feels like that, right? I mean, he's like this guy that, like, everybody will make time for. Apparently, though, not when he wants to get into some rapper's yeah, party. Yeah, not, not the Grammys. <laughs> but, all right, so, so you, you're, you're on this, you're riding this wave, you're working on Destiny, and then, I mean, I read on Twitter one day, that you're uh -oh. no longer at Bungie, and and then it just suddenly this something starts to unfold, and there's a lawsuit. There's so do you do you want to talk about? Do you want to tell me what happened? So we're up to that part of the story, right? We're up to that part of the so story. Are you going to have a, a soundtrack scoring this interview because this is where the sad strings come in? Is if that you the... want to score it, I would be <laughs> delighted. I think it would make a much better video, but uh. Uh, yeah. So. The, the, the long-time relationship with Bungie right. ends, yeah. uh, you are, by your account, fired. Yes. What, so no, what I happened? mean, that's, that's not my account. That just is well, what it is. We're giving your side of the story. We don't have, <laughs> to be fair, we don't have Bungie here. We have you that's here. That's true. Okay. So do you want to tell your story? Because I would love to hear it. What, what happened? So I, I would like to somewhat stay above a little bit and not dwell too much on the past, uh, but certainly it was painful, obviously. Um, I think in the most general way that I can describe, there was a point probably while I was working on Music of the Spheres and where some of what I was seeing happening in Destiny's development and also because I was on the board of directors of Bungie, and I'd worked hard to negotiate with Microsoft to get Bungie independent again, so I was one of the business leaders also of in, Bungie. In the community, you were one of the grizzled ancients, oh, because yeah. the Bungie nomenclature for you'd been there yeah. for an extremely long time. Right. 
So I was not only an, a, a veteran of Bungie, I was also sort of leading a lot of the business decisions and maybe uh, and our relationship with Activision and you know what we needed to do to get Destiny uh, to the point where it was shippable right. and good. So I think there were some business decisions and some creative uh, decisions that were being made over the course of probably from starting, believe it or not, in like the summer of 2011 is where I started to see potentially me moving in this direction and some of the other leaders at Bungie thinking it was okay to do these other ways. And I know that's pretty vague, but I mean, sometimes people just have different ideas and different approaches. And some of it was business related, some of it was creative. Um, we worked hard trying to resolve some of these differences. And, and because I think I was working so hard on something that was somewhat its own thing, Music of the Spheres, right. uh, I think perhaps the, the gulf was actually widening and I wasn't necessarily aware of it. Because they, did, did they feel, or was there sort of a feeling on one side or the other that you were almost a little divorced from the process of the game because you're off with Paul McCartney and you're doing, you're scoring all this thing and meanwhile they're back in Seattle. Uh, in the you know, that, you definitely should talk to some of those guys, but that actually, in hindsight, I think that is some of it. I actually do. Um, and then there were, there were some things that happened, uh, and this, this is in the, the court documents that came out. Um, but there were th some things that happened that I didn't think were appropriate in terms of what I thought we should be in charge of. I thought Bungie should be in charge of uh, creative work in a certain way, and I didn't want the publisher to be um, as influential as they ended up being. But other leaders at Bungie thought it was okay, and that was another point of contention. And so these things just started to grow. And um, I also started seeing longtime Bungie veterans who I collaborated really well with, who were you know, creatively really attuned, uh, slowly getting, leaving, let's say. So, so that was, I, I just sort of found myself by 2013, some of the, you know, Destiny had been delayed, there were things being re-jiggered, and there was just a, and my frustration with some of the business decisions and creative decisions started to mean that I was on this side of the divide and like everybody else was on this side. And as much as we tried to bridge it, it just didn't seem like it was gonna get bridged. But, but if there was an effort on both sides to try and bridge it, why were you fired? Why, why wasn't it just, okay, let's, have a meeting and and you realize that you're on opposite sides of the the shore uh why wasn't it more amicable because you again by you were fired and you uh were not given what you felt you were owed it, within that termination which you brought litigation over and and won uh so so why wasn't the why do you feel you were fired as opposed to just, okay, Marty, let's agree to go our separate ways and we'll take care of everything you're, why wasn't it more amicable in your opinion? So that is a great question. 
congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> the, the why question is actually still a question for me. I don't know why. I, so you were surprised by the, I was by surprised. the end, the termination. Yes. Uh, at, you know, when it happened, I, the, the very moment it happened, I was surprised that it happened at that moment, but the, it had been, you know, there was a lead up to it that I could see this is, this was the writing on the wall. This is where it was probably going to go. But I still had hope that it, it right. wasn't going to end that way. I, I really didn't think. So I really thought that there must be a way to amicably, you know, figure this out. Even if it meant the parting of ways, I thought it would be right. something that would be decent enough where we could do the typical, hey, everybody, I'm, you know, want to spend more time with my family, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Which, you know, whatever. Uh, but it it didn't happen uh, that you should reach out to Bungie and if you can find out the actual why it happened the way it happened um, I'm sure they have their version of, of what they think and their story and I was actually pretty surprised I, w when I left Bungie the day that they basically walked me out of the building and asked for my card um, I was in shock but I was told, hey, don't worry, we're, you know, we're, we're going to call you over the weekend and we'll come up with a way of talking to the public. Uh, by that time, I had already had lawyers because I, some conversations had been happening and it involved legal people. Right. Um, but I waited for five days and I didn't hear anything from Bungie. And at one point, my lawyer called me and said, hey, you're... Facebook and Twitter accounts still say you're a Bungie employee. And I'm like, well, I can't change my status on Facebook without somebody noticing. Perhaps Ryan McAfee would notice. I don't know. And they said, yeah, you're actually, uh, you're doing something that could actually be, you know, uh, a breach of your contract by maintaining publicly that you're a Bungie employee when you're not. So I said, well, what am I supposed to do? And he says, well, you should just tell your fans that you're, you know, that the board of directors decided to terminate you. And so that's what I did. And I did it like at 10 o'clock at night on a Tuesday, uh, five days after I was fired. So did you sleep that night? I did. I actually did. Uh, I, I, I think I had a couple glasses of wine just for the record. Uh, but I was sitting there uh, with my wife who said, I said, well, here's what the lawyers say I should say. And she goes, well, let me change it. She changed a couple of words and made it slightly different. I said, okay. So I didn't write the tweet. And I said, well, should I hit send? And she goes, no, why don't you wait till tomorrow? And I'm like, okay. So then we were watching TV and I was relaxed. And then like a half hour later, Marcy just said, hit send. <laughs> she just was really mad. And she said, I want you to hit send. And I said, okay. And I held my phone up. I said, you hit the button because I didn't write it and I'm not going to push the button, so you do it. The lawyer wrote it? The lawyer and Marcy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not like some great piece of writing, right. but like I just, I really, I had already gotten into trouble for some earlier tweets, like around E3 of 2013, which was also part of this problem. And I thought, you know, this is not going to be, I'm not going to write the tweet and I'm not going to hit send. I'll let Marcy do that. So she did. She hit send and, and uh, I said, you know, I think, I think some people are going to notice this. So you would, you would. I really didn't know how big it was going to be. You knew you you knew there was a growing chasm, a oh, rift. Yeah. But you you would hope that 
it wasn't your, you weren't looking to have a peaceful uh, parting of ways because you were still of hoping that it could be mended. Yes. I really was hoping it could be mended. Now, it's quite possible that it couldn't be mended and I was just, uh, you know, a, a thorn in the side of finishing destiny. You know, maybe I just wasn't as, as good of a leader and helper at that point because we were on such different sides. So I, I'm not saying that it wasn't the right thing for us to part ways. It probably was. I just don't think it was done in the, in the, in the best way. And uh, it was rough because I'm, you know, I'm still friends with a bunch of people there, sure. and these were my friends. As a matter of fact, um, this, I haven't told anybody this either, but so you get to know this. You're such a good interviewer. This is amazing. Um, a few months later, uh, before Destiny came out, I actually... For, uh, for other reasons, but I got an actual call on my phone while I was driving my car, and it was Paul. And he goes, oh, Marty, how you doing? I, I've heard some rumors. And I'm like, yeah, 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 it's true. Sorry, Paul. I, yeah, you know, things aren't good. I mean, I'd already publicly had gone around that I was gone from Bungie. And so I just sort of apologized. He goes, oh, yeah, let's, he goes, I know it's like, uh, it's tough. Uh, you know, I just want you to know you and I are still good. It's all great. And I said, well, thanks. Thanks for the call. We talked for a while. And then he said, yeah, I'm sure this is tough because, you know, these guys are your mates. And I said, yeah, Paul, it just it feels like the band breaking up. And then I realized who I was talking oh, yeah. to. Oh, <laughs> yeah, whoops. So I thought, well, I'll fix that. I'll fix that. I, you, you know how that is, Paul. And I thought, oh, gosh, oh. That, that's even worse. But he was really gracious. He says, oh, yeah, I know how that is. Yeah, it's tough. It's like these are your friends and... You know, so we had, he was really gracious and it was a, a wonderful conversation to have with Paul. Um, uh, but yeah, it did feel like there was, it felt like, like a band. And I had been, I've been in many bands and bands break up yeah. and it's never good. So do you think you weren't, I'm going to move on soon, I do promise, <laughs> but I mean, why do you, why withhold, why make it that seemingly personal and, and... I'm only on my side, and I only know my side of the story. Right. And, you know, if you read the documents, I think you see that the judge found in my favor and thought it was on the basis of good faith and fair dealing. It wasn't the right thing to do and wasn't fair. And right. she restored my stock and profit sharing and salary and all these different things. So, And hopefully the attorney's fees. <laughs> well, we won't, I'm not going to get into all the details, <laughs> but enough. let's just say... Like things she found in my favor. Okay, so, um, so the why question is still actually a question I have. I don't know why that was the way to approach the the issue. I I don't know what the head guys at Bungie or their lawyers or what they were. I don't know what their strategy was or their thinking was. Um, um, I think it's sort of sad that it became this public. Um, like I said, these are these were my friends. I worked there for a long, long time. We have a shared history that's tremendous. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that it went this way. I don't know why it went this way. Do you have any regrets about how everything went down? Oh, yeah, sure. I, I, I go back a long way with things that I look back and my 
behavior, um, decisions I made going all the way back to you know, Bungie at Microsoft, early Bungie at Microsoft days. And I think there are some decisions that perhaps eventually kind of led to this uh, division. Um, so at times I go, yeah, I wish I hadn't done that. I think it would have been better if I had made a different decision. There's a lot of those, but I'll save it for my book maybe. <laughs> uh, I mean, if anybody cares. We do, that's why you're here. I mean, <laughs> okay. but, and I think maybe you kind of answered this already, but now you know, it's, it's all, legally it's all over. You're here at Highwire, you've started a new studio. How do you feel now that it's all over? How do you feel? Well, you know, the interesting thing is, and I don't remember, this is, it's funny, when I talk about Paul McCartney, I, I, there are stories that I know from documentaries on the Beatles and Paul McCartney, and then there are stories that he actually sat in a recording studio with me and Mike, or just me or whatever, and told these stories. Yeah. So when I say Paul has this story, I can't remember where it's from. It could actually be something he told me. But I think after the Beatles broke up, and that was, you know, these are childhood friends, this is a long time, amazingly successful thing, but when the Beatles broke up, Paul said that he, he like laid in bed for like a year. And then he just decided, well wait, I'm not gonna let this just, you know, wreck my, the rest of, he was, what was he? He was like 27, 28 years yeah. old. I mean, he had a whole lifetime ahead of him. Um, but it, the, Jamie Griesmer, who had left Bungie earlier, uh, knew that I was on the verge of leaving Bungie. And he was the first guy to come up. He like drove to the house and we had met for lunch, but he came right up uh, to our house and had dinner with Marcy and I, and, and he was great. He was just like, this is gonna be devastating. He, he knew it because he had gone through it. Uh, he's actually probably gone through it more than I have, actually. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, he, he said, look, let's, you know, you need to not dwell on this. It's gonna take you a while. You're gonna be in shock for a while. It's gonna be tough. Um, but hey, in the meantime, let's talk about starting something. Yeah. And that was, like, was a huge shot in the arm for me because it was like, as distracting as it was to go through the year and a half of arbitration, which is really just a trial and depositions and meetings with lawyers and meetings with more lawyers and more, it just went on and on. But during that period, um, uh, Jared and Jamie and I got together and said, let's start something new. And it was really great for me to have a whole different side of my brain that could work on what can we do that's new? What can we do that's interesting? How can I still do creative stuff and compartmentalize a little bit? So, so it gave me a lot of energy. It was, so it was, because I just, I can't even imagine having, waking up every day and, and knowing that you're, you were at one point, you were also being countersued. Yeah. As well, so, I mean. That are, happened on Christmas Eve. <laughs> are you, I mean. <laughs> like did, eight months into did it. Did you, it sounds like, you, did you, you mostly relied on, on your friends and family for support. Did, did you, did you go into therapy at all? Did you talk to any, <laughs> no, I mean, I'm serious. I mean, I've, yeah, I've done no, no, it. No, no, I've done it. After, after, uh, I was divorced and I went, I went into therapy and it was so, you know, I, I, I it's, it's just dealing with something that traumatic. Yeah. It's a, it's a, I mean, it's a, obviously it's a severely life affecting experience. Well, and uh, yeah, I had like I think I said probably when it started to feel not right at Bungie, this is 2011-ish, yeah. um, 
Marcy sort of noticed and she said, hey, you know, there's this therapist, you should maybe go talk to her. And so I was already like talking to a therapist, uh, feeling like, well, I don't really need to do this, but I was glad I was yeah. because then as I went through it, I, I had therapy. As a matter of fact, the night I was driving down and Paul called, I was on my way to see my therapist. So that was a big shot in the arm. And uh, yeah, so that helped. I mean, yeah. it's like, it's hard to, you can, friends and family and all the rest of it and, um, you know, lots of support. Um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty devastating to have something that was that big of a chunk of your life to just, you know, have it kind of stop that way. So you just, you just mentioned uh, Jamie and Jared and talking about starting something. So, but inevitably, I, obviously that's where you, that's where you are. That's literally where we are now is at Highwire with, with those guys. Right. Uh, when, when news broke that when this all went public, I got to figure you, you had to have like every major developer and publisher calling you and knocking on your door at this point, right? I mean, you, you are, I mean, you are the top of your field. There is not, that is not a debatable thing. So did you have a lot of, a lot of people calling you up? Um, I remember during the first few weeks after this thing went public, um, and it went public definitely bigger than I was expecting. It really did. I really wasn't expecting it. And it's weird because when you work, when you have your head down and you focus for you know, over a decade on a project like the Halo series, uh, you know that there are fans out there, but you sort of, you don't really get a sense of it. Right. Like this sort of, you know, getting emails from people in, you know, Australia and Czechoslovakia or whatever. I mean, it was weird. I just they had no idea that, that there was, was that much interest. Um, but, you know, I, I would watch like podcasts and people would this, they would, they'd talk about things. And I remember at one point, Marcy and I were in the kitchen and I had a podcast going and the guys were saying something like, well, I'm sure that, you know, Marty's phone is ringing off the hook. And I just hit pause at that point and I looked at her and she goes, nope, not ringing. <laughs> So no, it didn't ring off the hook, um, and I can't really explain That's exactly what me. that is. I, I think you know, it, it's it, it's there's something about someone who's going through a messy time that's very public. It's you know maybe he's a troublemaker. Well, we certainly don't want to have him work for us at this moment when he's doing you know right in the middle of stuff. Yeah. So it wasn't a big surprise to me, but now yeah, I didn't have a whole bunch of other developers. I had a few. We had a few offers and some things. I probably wasn't as interested in some of the things, but I didn't have like immediately did, some giant developers say, we want you right now to be our, our audio director. Did you, did you think about, because uh, you know, again, this is a second career for you. You've had a long successful yeah. career. Did you think about retiring and just saying, forget, I'm done? Well, I, and actually, I, yes, I did think about that. Definitely. I, I've thought about, well, maybe, maybe I'm done with the game music side of my career and maybe there's a third act here coming up. And to a certain extent, I think this is, whatever I'm doing now is kind of an act three, I don't know. Um, I started doing a lot more speaking. I actually got calls to speak like right away. I went, did a keynote at the uh, um, Nordic Games Conference in Sweden, which was great. And then I ended up doing a whole bunch of speaking that year. Um, around the country, a bunch of different things, and some educational opportunities. You're like the ex-president, just going out <laughs> on the speaking tour circuit at that point. Exactly. Right. I think I think that, and it felt that, that stuff felt good. 
felt really good. Um, it, you know, there wasn't a lot of creative pressure at that point. Um, and you know, it wasn't a big performance thing, but it was, I don't mind going out and speaking and just sharing stories and sharing, you know, process and things like that. So, so before we get to High Wire, which is yeah. why we're here, and, we'll, and then we'll wrap this up. Please, this is yes. already the longest episode ever, but this is, this is <laughs> awesome. Uh, put the rumor to rest. Did, did, did uh, you talk to 343 at all about continuing on uh, with Halo at Microsoft? Uh, there were no, there really were never any specific discussions about that. I know the people over there pretty well. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to make sure was um, that there was nobody over there that had any sort of hard feelings. So I, you know, Frankie and I had always been friends, and uh, Frank O'Connor, mm -hmm. shouldn't just say Frankie, but everybody knows him as Frankie. Yeah. Uh, we had coffee a couple of times, and, and uh, I met with Bonnie Ross, and I met with Phil Spencer, just to make sure that, like, like whatever, there were, during the uh, split between Bungie and Microsoft, when Bungie got independent of Microsoft, yeah. I think there were some rough things that happened Inevitably. during that period. Yeah. And so I just wanted to sort of say, hey, you know, uh, I'm, I'm out here, there's no hard feelings, uh, you know, let's be friends, and that was all good. But there was never any real serious discussion about uh, doing anything with Halo. Was, would that have been of any creative interest to you? Because I got to figure, you, you, did you, had you said everything you wanted to say in the Halo universe yourself? You know, uh, it's, it's one of those things where, yeah, there's a certain amount of like, I'm not sure what I would have done there. Uh, but on the other hand, I wasn't asked. Right. So I don't know if somebody had come to me seriously and said, hey, here's a serious project we'd like you to join us on that had to do with Halo. I, I, I don't know how that would have felt. Um, but it was more important for me to just to make sure the personal relationships were yeah. all good. And they were. Um, I think we are in good shape. And, uh, you know, I, to a certain extent, I don't want to push myself in anybody's direction. And, um, I don't know how I'd respond if somebody asked me to do something. It's re I really don't until until the offer is made to me. Yeah. Like going all the way back to like, hey, I don't want to prostitute my art. Until somebody actually offers me something, I, I'm not sure how I would respond. So you start Highwire. Here we are. We're literally yep. here. Yeah. Uh, and you decide to make a VR game. Right. What sort of possibilities does VR open up to you as a sound designer? Because you are, of course, in the world, so right. to speak. Um, well, this is this is probably why I was most excited about Jamie's idea. Like, let's go after the next newest thing that no one has proven yet that it can be successful. And that was it. Just immediately, that's a huge creative mountain to climb, but it's also problems to solve that are exciting. And for me, like going back to the Xbox, it was the first game platform that was going to ship with surround sound. So being able to make a game in surround sound, that, and no one has ever done that before back in 2000, yeah. that was a huge attraction for me. I just, that was spectacular. And now with VR, it's not just surround sound. It's we know where your ears are. I know where your ears are when you put the thing on. Everything yeah. is so perfectly positional. When you move your head a little bit, the sound is around you, and it's like you're there. Um, so solving um, 
you know, true three-dimensional spatialized audio and making that compelling and aesthetically pleasing um, is is an exciting place to be as a sound designer. And then what, how does story get told in that environment? How does music work in that environment? All these things um, nobody's done yet. And certainly there's no commercial products out there yet because there's, there's nothing commercial available right. yet. So we're right at the beginning of this brave new world and hopefully it's uh, um, something that we're gonna be part of, you know, the crew that figures out how to make it compelling. And I wanna do an aesthetically pleasing, compelling game experience because uh, that's something I know how to help with and solving um, actual three-dimensional surround audio issues uh, is, is really a cool place to be. Soundtrack-wise, you've, of course, you've got Halo is legendary, and uh, you worked with Paul McCartney. Do you worry about trying to top yourself? Yeah, I mean, this is why um, this is why what I want to do now with with Golem is I want to I want to go back and not just come up with music that fits the world we're creating, but can also maybe be introduced to people so they can hear a musical emotional journey in music that can presage and tell them what the world of Golem is going to be like. Um, I don't need to compete with myself. I, I can't go back to Abbey Road and have a hundred and you know 14 piece orchestra and choir and huge huge thing with Paul McCartney. That's I don't even think that's what Golem should have. Golem is a very personal smaller story so I want to make something musically that I'm not even going to try to compete with uh, the Halo and, and Destiny universe. I'm going, to, I'm going to make music that fits this world and has its own hopefully compelling reason to be listened to. And then the last question I have for you, Marty, yeah. is uh, again, in my opinion, I, I really genuinely believe you're still, you are the best in the video game world at this. Thank you. But is there is, and, and I mean, you know, we've seen the Michael Giacchinos, the all these, all these other uh, sort of full-time video. Well, Giacchino's off winning Oscars winning now, but, Academy Awards. But, you know, the, the, it's, it's become <laughs> a sort of full-time. It's become a real serious thing to have right. a, a composer that works, you know, in the world of video games and at a maybe a specific developer. Even is there anybody out there that you like that that's uh, that you think is. You know, who, who's the, besides you, who, who's the best? Oh, well, so certainly you need to include Mike Salvatore as me, right? Yes. So it's me and Mike Apologies, who Mike. have worked forever. <laughs> uh, and Mike is, still does amazing stuff. Um, uh, but so push that aside, there's all sorts of incredibly talented people in the, in the industry now, and especially, you know, when we first started doing games, there just wasn't as big a pool of talent being attracted to the industry. So I feel good that we were able to jump in a little bit early. So if you're sort of early into the pool, like it's, it's better than already having a chock full of talent right. place you try to elbow yourself into. Uh, but there are so many guys, if I start naming actual composers, I think I'll leave somebody out that I have tons of respect for, but I'm friends with just about all these composers. Um, if I'm not, it's because I haven't met some of them. Hmm. But there are so many people that are amazing, and and uh, 
Uh, yeah, I just think it's dangerous for me to to actually start naming people, but they're you know who they are. I mean, they're the same people who get nominated for best music and. I gotta say, I'm gonna give out one shout out then, because this is new and it's top of mind. But I mean, I'm friends with all these other people who've been writing music for games. But the game I thought was most compelling to me this last year was uh, uh, the uh, Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, and Jessica Curry's score for that was just really tremendous in my opinion. I agree completely. And I just love hearing, you know, this aesthetic that came into a game that you wouldn't expect to work in a game necessarily that this sort of British choral tradition and these beautiful strings and you know I I, I, I emailed her right away and, and she was kind enough to email me back and thank me for complimenting her but I just I thought that was just like right now today it's just it's really great to see that pretty much any kind of style of music is appropriate like it's no longer, no one says, oh, that's game music. It's just music. And that's what's exciting to me about, you know, the Kickstarter that we're starting is that, like, I want to do music that people can listen to. It's not a soundtrack of something you've already played. It's a soundtrack of something you're going to play, and it has music that's old-fashioned in the sense that you sit down and just listen to the music and in the stories you tell in your head as you're listening to it, maybe they line up with what you eventually play. Maybe they'll change when you actually play the game a little bit, but it will, it will you know, introduce the listener to the world of Golem that we're going to give them as an experience to play, but it's gonna be a musical introduction. So it's the musical prequel that I want people to be interested in. So it's a new project, I'm excited about it. Well, we've got details of the prequel Kickstarter album uh, on IGN. Marty, thank you so much. That was an absolute pleasure for me. Uh, Marty O'Donnell, longtime Bungie veteran, Halo composer, Destiny composer, now taking on the world of virtual reality with Golem for PlayStation VR. We are covering Golem all month long as part of IGN First. And don't miss our other episodes of IGN Unfiltered sitting down with the most notable names in the video game industry. You can check those out on IGN, YouTube, or iTunes. And we'll see you soon. Keep it tuned right here to IGN for all things related to the very best in the business. Hey, Jenny, have you um, ever heard of a vampire slayer? Do you mean the one girl in all the world with the strength and skill to fight the vampires, demons, and forces of darkness? I do. Oh, yeah, I've heard of her. Cool. My name is Jenny Owen Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together, we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Never seen Buffy before? We will protect you. Our podcast is spoiler-free, so first-time viewers can listen along safely. Ever thought to yourself, I wish someone was brave enough to write an original song for every single episode of Buffy? <laughs> Your search is at an end, my friend, because we did exactly that. So if you've never watched Buffy or if you're about to watch the series for the 14th time, come over and join us. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at BufferingCast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.